Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Carolina de Robertis is a writer of Uruguayan origins and the author of The Gods of Tango, Perla, and the international bestseller The Invisible Mountain. Her novels have been translated into 17 languages, count them, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, and have garnered a Stonewall Book Award, Italy's Regium Julie Prize, a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and numerous other honors. She is also a translator of Latin American and Spanish literature, and editor of the anthology Radical Hope, Letters of Love and Descent in Dangerous Times, which we do have for sale up there. Um, in 2017, the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts named De Robertis on its 100 list of people, organizations, and movements that are shaping the future of culture. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she, te she teaches at San Francisco State University and lives in Oakland, California with her wife and two children. Um, and a bit of news, Cantoras was just named a finalist for the Kirkus Review Fiction Prize. <laughs> Woo! All right, so without further ado, everyone, please welcome Carolina de Robertis to the Skylight Stage. Thank you so much for that. Hi, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. How are you? Good. <laughs> so great to see you too. So great to see everybody here. And um, this is really very special for me. Thank you so much, Skylight Books. What an incredible bookstore. Um, I hope that you all buy, not, not just, I'm not talking about my book, but buy things, buy cards, buy other people's books, um, and support this incredible jewel and institution. It makes such a difference um, for the store itself and also for the way that literary culture can continue to thrive in our cities, which is something that we need so much. So um, thank you, Skylight Books. Um, and I also want to just recognize that I have old friends in the audience tonight, and also people who are part of my sisterhood and brotherhood of writers that I know from Macondo Workshop, and Hedgebrook, and, um, and, and Las Dos Brujas Workshop, and just so much goodness. And the Radical Hope was mentioned, and one of the authors who contributed to that anthology is also here in the house, Parnas Forutan, who is the author of an incredible novel called The Girl from the Garden. Thank you, Parnas. So, um, yeah, so that's really incredibly special for me. I moved to this country um, when I was 10 years old. I immigrated at the age of 10 and um, to Los Angeles. And so there are people in this audience who were among my first best friends in this country. And when I walked in tonight, I was sort of for what an instant 10 years old, um, which is a very beautiful full circle. Also people who knew me in middle school and high school, so in the Q&A time, go easy, okay? <laughs> people know things. Um, so on that note, um, thank you all so much for being here with me. I'm going to read to you from this novel, my fourth novel, Cantoras, and then I am really looking forward to the portion of the evening that is question and answer. So I invite you to now already uh, start percolating, thinking of questions or points of conversation that you would like to bring forward. Um, because 
I do feel that these public events for talking about and thinking about books together, but not just books, also stories, narrative, um, the kind of culture that we want to shape um, together, because ultimately the future of culture, it's very nice to be named to a list of people who are shaping the future of culture. And I think every single person in this room is shaping the future of culture. It's actually something that is collectively driven and collectively realized. Is that still true in times like these? Hell yes. So, um, so on that note, let's um, shape and celebrate culture together and, and take advantage of this time of being in community, in IRL, in a real space, and um, not only listen, but also have a conversation. So, cantoras, um, the title is a word that means singers, a female word for singers in Spanish. And um, it, in, the, in this context, it comes from um, a group of women who were living very much under the radar, closeted in Uruguay during the dictatorship of the 70s and 80s who used this word as code for lesbian, as a way to kind of talk about that which had to be silenced in order to stay safe during a um, repressive regime. And so, you know, they might look at a woman and go, do you think she's a cantora? Does she sing? You know, wink, wink. Um, and that has a lot of connotations, right? So it has maybe suggestive connotations, and those are definitely part of it. Um, but it also has connotations around, you know, being a woman who has a voice and what it means to voice and have a voice. Um, and so the real women who use that word are the inspiration for this book. They are people that I first met 18 years ago um, in 2001, and, and I can talk more about that in the question and answer if there's interest, but for now I'll just say that, um, that although this is absolutely a work of fiction, it also is drawing on and deeply inspired by um, some really courageous women's um, real experiences and lives who are a generation older than me. So, um, <clears throat> so I'm going to read from towards the beginning of the book. Um, these women take refuge at a very far-flung beach that has no running water, that has no electricity, called Cabo Polonio. It still has no running water or electricity today um, because it's a it's a wildlife refuge. Um, but at the time, it was you know super far flung, and um, there were just a few scattered fishermen living there. And these five women um, decided to take a trip out there so that they could actually talk to each other away from the surveillance of the capital and sort of come out to each other on this trip. So this is about this is from the point of view of Flaca, one of the five main characters, and it's some of her backstory, how she first met her best friend Romina um, four years before the first trip to the beach and then fast forwards to um, how the trip came together four years later. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay, great. So <clears throat> Romina had been Flaca's best friend since they first met at a Communist Party meeting in early 1973 when Flaca was 17 years old and the whole world still felt like a long story waiting to unfurl before her largely because she didn't read the newspaper or follow politics, so that even with the occasional evening curfews and the sudden presence of soldiers on the streets, she'd been able to see the world as more or less normal, the country's problems as possible to fix in the long run. These had been the benefits of not paying attention. 
In those days, she didn't see politics as having anything to do with her or with her hopes for the future, which at that point involved finding a way to stay alive while also being herself. She'd only gone to the Communist Party meeting out of boredom, and because the flyer had been handed to her by a pretty university student with glossy, intoxicating hair, and Flacca had wanted to see her again. The pretty university student was not at the meeting, which was interminable and chaotic, full of passionate monologues from young and old men who took pastries from the trays without saying thank you to the women and girls who brought them. Communism, Flaca thought, must not be for me. The best part of the meeting was Romina, one of the enthused purveyors of pastries, 18 years old. Romina's hair was not glossy. It was, in fact, just the opposite, a dark riot of curls, also good to drown in. There was something about her, a kind of billowing intensity to her gaze that made Flaca want to stare at her all night and then some. Toward the end of the meeting, Romina finally had a chance to speak, and she did so with such a passion that Flaca became officially obsessed. She buried that obsession under a mantle of friendship, best friendship, fa fast friendship, tell each other all friendship, for a month, until, finally, one night, they kissed in the bathroom of a nightclub in Ciudad Vieja after dancing with a string of hapless young men. She was stupefied to discover that this could happen, that a girl could kiss her back. It was as good as in her dreaming, better. The world turned inside out to fit her dreams. Beyond the world of boy and the world of girl, they'd found a chasm no one spoke of. They fell into it together. They met in their homes when their fathers were at work and their mothers out at a card game or the hair salon, the sex furtive, sharp with the danger of being discovered. On three glorious occasions, they saved up pesos for a cheap motel room where the board clerks assumed them to be sisters when they checked in and where they never wasted a single hour on sleep. They took delight in each other in absolute secret. Then the coup happened and Romina disappeared. Her parents disclosed nothing. When Flaca called, they hung up as soon as they heard Romina's name Flaca didn't dare knock on their door. Romina, arrested, her dreams filled with images of Romina's body twisted or bruised beyond recognition. To distract herself and to drown out the despair that droned through every waking minute, she took advantage of her after-school work at her parents' butcher shop to seduce a restless young housewife with acrobatic thighs and a full-lipped librarian who worked at the Biblioteca Nacional and demanded to be spanked with her gold-embossed edition of Dante's Inferno. <laughs> yes, I did write that. <laughs> That's not in the text. <laughs> It seemed to Flaca that both of them were gripped by a furious erotic charge unleashed by those days of chaos and danger, though neither lover ever referred directly to the coup. She had never seduced a woman who was so much older than her before. The thrill of it helped her survive the terror of her days. Her lovers seemed to forget how young she was, Perhaps because they wanted to, hungry as they were for distraction and pleasure as the world spun out of control. 
For the rest of her life, Flaca would wonder whether this period shaped her into a Don Juan or whether it simply uncovered what was already inside. She would never settle on an answer. When Romina surfaced again, she hadn't been arrested. She'd been hiding at her aunt's house in far-flung Tacuarembó, where no one would have thought to look for her. She was in one piece. She quickly discovered these two dalliances, as Flaca made no attempt to lie. Romina exploded. She did not speak to Flaca for a year. Finally, she came to the butcher's shop, and Flaca's heart pounded in her chest. By then, the housewife had shrunk back into her marriage in a panic, while the librarian had expanded her repertoire of ways to mix books with sex. And Flaca had missed Romina every day. Don't get your hopes up, Romina said. I love you, and you're my friend, but there'll be no more chuku-chuku for us. Not ever. <laughs> it was enough for Flaca. She didn't press the question. From then on, their bond was sure and unconditional. They told each other their secrets and turned to each other whenever they needed help. With the passing of years, Romina seemed safe. But then, just two weeks ago now, Romina had disappeared for the second time, and Flaca had been possessed by fear that she would never see her again, that she'd been caught up in the great hidden machine. She was wrong about the first fear, but she was right about the second. After three nights gone, Romina reappeared again at the side of the road at the outskirts of the city, almost but not quite naked and more or less in one piece, with just a few cigarette burns and a new glassy look in her eyes to separate her from the woman she was before. Flaca was flooded with gratitude to have her back, a gratitude shot through with rage and pain at the cigarettes, at whatever had given rise to that glassy look. She wanted to offer something, a way to forget, a way out, a way through, something special, she thought, a reprieve, an escape. We're going to celebrate, she told Romina over mate at the butcher shop. Romina stared at her as though she were crazy. It was the first time she'd made eye contact that afternoon. What the hell is there to celebrate? The fact that you're alive? Romina didn't answer. Flaca pulled out a map of the Uruguayan coast and spread it on the counter where she usually wrapped meat for customers. There's this place I've heard about for my tia, this beach, a beautiful beach. I've been to Punta del Este, I'm never going back. <sighs> I'm not talking about Punta del Este. This is the opposite. No glitzy nightclubs, no expensive bikinis, no luxury apartments. Actually, there's no luxury at all in the place I'm talking about. None? Romina couldn't keep her curiosity from showing. Flaca smiled, thinking, it's working. This project is going to take her out of the sinkhole in her mind, keep her busy with something else. None at all. There's a lighthouse, a few fishermen's shacks. That's about it. There isn't even electricity out there or running water. It's all candles and oil lamps. What about flashlights? Do people use flashlights or are there no batteries out there either? I don't know. We could take flashlights. Look, don't worry. The real thing is, we'll be far away from the city, from the noise of all of this. It'll be fun, a kind of party in the wilderness. With no running water? What are we going to do, shit behind trees? I don't know yet, but there are fishermen there. I'm sure they shit somewhere. Anyway, 
What makes it a celebration is that we're out there together. And, and there's this woman I'd like to bring with me too. Aha, so that's what this is about. Flaka put her hands up in an exa exaggerated gesture of innocence. I have no idea what you mean. You just want to have a romantic escapade, seducer that you are, and you're dragging me out on some lover's escape. If I wanted it to be like that, do you think I'd be inviting you out there with me? Romina stopped and registered the hurt on Flaka's face. I'm sorry, Flaka. I was joking. This is our trip, Romina. Actually, to tell you the truth, I'm terrified of going. I've never lived without running water or electricity for a single day of my life. I have no idea how we're going to shit or what will happen to us. Maybe we'll starve. Maybe we'll freeze. Maybe we'll hate each other by the end. I don't know. It's not really a vacation at all. Then what is it? I don't know. An adventure. No, more than that. A test. A test of what? Of staying alive. Of coming back to life. Because she stopped and stared at Romina. The words caught in her throat. Say it, Romina whispered. Just say it, Flaca. I'm dead here in the city. Everybody is. We're all walking corpses. I have to get out of here to find out whether I can still be alive. Montevideo is a fucking prison, a huge open-air prison, and I'm sorry if that sounds like I'm reducing what you've been through, but shut up for a moment, Romina said. She reached for Flaca's pack of cigarettes on the counter. Flaca struck a match and gave her a light. Her hands were shaking, to, shake, her hands were shaking, and so, she realized, were Romina's. They both pretended not to notice. Romina inhaled. Romina, I'm sorry, I, I said shut up. Flaca nodded. She lit a cigarette of her own, a good, deep scratching of her lungs. I understand. Romina said, eyes on the smoke. I'll come. And so the trip had come together. In the evenings, they met in Flaca's bedroom to plan as her parents watched television just down the hall. Flaca spread three different maps open on her bed, trying to get the lay of the land, and started various haphazard lists of the things they'd need to survive out in nature. On their last night of planning, the night before their departure, as Flaca was packing and organizing her rucksack, Romina brought a friend over, Malena, a woman whom Romina had met in a plaza near the university during the lunch hour, each of them eating empanadas from the nearby bakery. They had a parallel ritual of buying one ham and cheese and one creamed corn empanada and saving a bit of crust for the pigeons. This had led, naturally, to conversation. Malena was an office worker and looked the part. She was efficient, prim, tidy, pretty, yes, with a sensuous mouth and almond eyes, but her bun was as tight as her smile. She was three years older than Romina, 25, and dressed like someone twice her age. That matron's cardigan, Flaca would not have guessed this woman was one of them. Malena's never seen a sea lion, Romina declared, as if that settled everything. Flaca didn't contest this until Malena went down the hall to use the bathroom. Are you sure about this? It's fine. She's fine. She's one of us. Have you asked her? Do you ask women what they are before you bed them? You're going to bed with her? No, not that it's any of your business. Flaca sighed. She couldn't fight Romina and win. Her friend knew her too well. 
Anyway, Romina went on, you're bringing what's-her-name, your latest housewife, so it's only fair. She's more than just the latest housewife. She's, aha, so she is a housewife. I knew it. She's different. Romina looked skeptical. Different how? I don't know. She just is. Flaca fidgeted. She'd waited as long as she could to break this last piece of news. Also, um, I've invited one more person. Who? A girl I met at the butcher's shop. Romina laughed. And what's your what's-her-name going to have to say about that? No, it's not like that. With this girl, I mean. She's... Don't get angry, Romina. She's young. How young? Flaca looked down. Flaca, how old is she? She'd meant to lie to Romina to keep this detail out of sight, but what was the use of lying to someone who could see right into you? It always caught up with her in the end. <laughs> and with all the lies and silence Flaca relied on to keep her life intact, it was this very being seen into that made her bond with Romina as essential as breath. She's 16. Flaca, but she's definitely one of us, and she seems to be alone. Did you ask her whether she's one of us? Flaca stared at a stain on the wall as if it might suddenly reveal secret hieroglyphs. Checkmate, she finally said. This is crazy, Romina said, absolutely reckless. Five of, you know, of us? Have you ever done such a thing before? Flaca considered this, us. The word glided through her mind like a leaf or a stone, troubling the waters. Over the years, she had encountered a range of women who could be seen as part of this us, whether they would admit to it or not. She and Romina trusted each other, had forged a bond, a miraculous secret society of two, but five. Five? All in one place? All of them admitting to what they were? Not that everyone on this trip was doing so yet, but wasn't joining the trip a kind of incrimination? Five, together. She had never heard of such a thing. Here, now, in this Uruguay, you could be arrested for holding gatherings of five or more in your home without a permit. As for homosexuality, it was a crime that could land you in the same prisons as the guerrillas and the journalists, prison with torture, prison without trial. There was no law against homosexuality, but that didn't matter because the regime did whatever it wanted, laws or no, and also because there was a law against affronts to decency, and since long before the coup, few things had been more of an affront, more repugnant. No worse insult for a man than puto. The men were more reviled and more visible. No, you amaze me, Flaca. We'll be all right, she said, uncertainly. It's not like the city out there. There's no one to snitch to know what we're doing or what we are. How do you know? From what my aunt told me. Romina stared at her as if making a furious calculation. This beach of yours, it's either going to be Ithaca or Shilla. There she goes again with her literary references, Flaca thought. It was from the Odyssey, wasn't it? She'd had to read it in school. One of those was the site of a shipwreck and the other was home. But which was which? She couldn't remember. Unlike Romina, she'd been a poor student, hadn't really cared. Malena was back, scanning their faces as if sensing that she'd missed something. Had she been listening in the hall? How long ago had the toilet flushed? What do you think, Malena? Romina said glancing wryly at each of them in turn. Are we headed to Ithaca or Sheila? I don't know, Malena said, with a gravity that surprised them both. 
The three women stared at each other in silence for several seconds, which stretched and ached around them. I suppose, Malina went on, the real question is, which one are we looking for? Thank you so much for listening. Thank you. Muchas gracias. Thank you so much. Um, questions? Pat and then Michael. Uh, yes. So, so far all my novels are independent worlds. So I do like secretly stitch them together in a really sort of random way. Like in my second novel, somebody turns out to have a grandfather who appears as a minor character in the first novel. It's like a little secret Easter egg, you know, <laughs> I just sort of put it there for myself. Um, but I've ha occasionally had readers say, wait a minute, which is kind of really interesting. Um, but, but that's a sort of a little like stitching at the end. Basically they are their own worlds. Um, and for me, novels uh, begin with an urgent question, something that I want to explore. Um, one of the sort of beacons for me in, in, in writing fiction is um, what the late, great Toni Morrison had to say, novels are inquiries. Those are like three of the most important words for me as a writer, that novels are inquiries. They begin with a, a burning question, something that we want to know, and we may not find an answer, but we swim through the answer, we, we swim through the question and explore it. Um, having that burning in the question helps uh, create urgency for me as a writer to give X number of years of labor to this work without ever really knowing whether it'll see the light of day, right? You have to have some burning, you know, keep me going through that. Um, and also hopefully, you know, it will transmit a sense of, of meaning or urgency to the, to the reader. So in this case, you know, um, like I said, I began with um, ins being inspired by real people and real people's lives. By the time I knew consciously that I was going to attempt to write this book, um, I had known these people for over a decade. So I had been sort of gathering those stories and the sensibility around this world and this generation, this particular crew of queer women, um, this particular generation um, of Uruguayan people, um, you know, was something that I had been getting to know for a very long time. So it was already, s the material was swimming inside me a lot already when I started writing and shaping it. It's like, they became their own characters though, I should be very clear, I made composites. Like Flaca began being based on a particular person um, who when I told her that I was working on this book, she just gave me her blessing to use any aspect of her life story that I liked. She's one of three people who really warmly opened me, opened in this way and said, come, interview me, um, you know, ask me anything. You know, the woman on whom Flaca is based was like, I make great milanesas, I've got some whiskey, it's cold, I'll put on the estufa, you know, because it's winter in June and that's when I could go was June. And, uh, and, and, uh, and I got stories, more stories, yeah. Research with Milanesas, it's, it's good. Yeah, it's really it's a good way to do research, right? We have another Uruguayan in the house. You don't mind my saying so. Um, oh, yes, and then Michael, yes. Um, so there are two, I answered my question. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. 
So they haven't read it because there's only one woman actually in the crew who can read in English. Um, so all the other women, they don't speak English. They don't speak or read English. Um, happily, it's looking really good for a translation to Spanish of this book next year. So fingers crossed, and then I'll be able to take a suitcase full and, um, and they'll be able to read it. Um, but yes, I've tried, to, I've tried to kind of relay some of the things that, came, that got into the book and some of the things that didn't. So one, so one of the women, the main, the, woman that, the main woman in here, well, no, not the main character, because truly there are five protagonists. And that was really important to me, that this was very much an ensemble cast. That this, is, um, this is five main characters. And we, uh, even the structure of the novel is such that we flow between their points of view. Um, and that was actually very freeing for me in writing a portrait of queer culture because there can be so much pressure when we write any marginalized identity, right, to portray things in a certain way, and representation, wanting to represent everything, and respectability, and all of those kinds of things um, playing into stereotypes. So having, so having five characters was very freeing around that because Flaca can be very promiscuous and very interesting. You know, you, you heard that she's interested in, you know, exploring the world. And, um, and if she were the only main character, the, you know, there could be pressure on it. It's like, does that mean that all lesbians are like that? You know what I mean? And I think when you're, when you're putting mar historically marginalized stories out there, that can really be, um, can feel like a, a burden. And I felt like that was off my shoulders in a way by having a group, by having a group cast, because I could really show um, the dazzling diversity of, of, of these women. And, and they could argue with each other and, and, and reflect different lives. Um, but I've moved a little bit away from your question about, that, about the women themselves. So um, the woman on whom the young woman is based, the one who's 16 at the beginning of the book, um, is one of my best friends in Uruguay. I mean, she's really my sister. She's my children's tia. I mean, like, I go to Uruguay now. I stay with her and her partner, who is uh, a Paraguayan immigrant in Uruguay. Um, she's a beautiful Paraguayan painter. There's a Paraguayan character in here, and so I did a lot of deep listening with her. She grew up speaking Guarani in the home, a totally different culture. And she went to Uruguay to live with my friend Gabi, beautiful uh, same-sex couple. And um, so, you know, they're very, they're very close to me. You know, they're like heart people for me. And then Gabi was the youngest in the crew. And so she has, she's in her mid-50s now, and then her friends are like in their early 60s now. And um, some of them I had met and knew, and some of them I sort of knew by name because I would hear stories about them, but it wasn't until the book was finished that I actually got to know some of them just this last summer, and it was weird to come back and like the book is written, you know, <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm getting to know some of these people, so that was interesting. It was very welcoming. Um, people have, they, the, the people, the people who are part of this crew, um, I would say just generally, whether it's the ones I formally sat down with and interviewed and who made me Milanesas, um, or I took them out to lunch and picked their brain and listened to their stories, um, or whether it's the people who you know, I, are maybe you know, I, did, I saw less often, um, they have all really been incredibly generous um, with sort of just entrusting me with like, yes, hear our stories, tell our stories. Um, and it's very humbling to me um, and something I took very seriously. And of course, you have to take some freedom in order to sh shape fiction, right? In order a book, for a book to have a narrative shape. This book spans 35 years. A lot of things happen in their lives. To have, um, to have a plot with shape, you know, you make certain choices. Um, but there are also things in here that are very much based on um, 
real things that people told me happened to them. And so I also wanted a sense of historical veracity, um, in part because, you know, some of you may know that in, for, since my first novel, The Invisible Mountain, I've been writing about the Uruguayan dictatorship. That was a three generations, 90-year history, and the, and the last generation has a, you know, goes through the period of the dictatorship, and there's a political prisoner. And so I've been researching the dicta dictatorship in Uruguay with a, quite an obsession <laughs> for years, um, for 19 years. And how many books did I find that really told the story of what it was like to be gay or lesbian or bisexual, let alone transgender, under that dictatorship? Like, it's just still not documented in Uruguay, let alone anywhere else. So I, I really did feel this urgency to um, document via fiction, right? Because the stories exist. We, have, we queers have always existed. Right, but we're sort of n not represented in, in, in formal histories a lot of the time for a lot of reasons. Yes, sir. I thought you just mentioned something about the translation in Yes. Do you write in English? I do. Uh, have you always written in English? Yes, so, um, so my parents are Uruguayan and um, left South America when my mother was pregnant with me. Um, I do like to say that I was made in Uruguay right? Um, but not born there. So uh, I was born in England and um, grew up in three different countries and I got to California when I was 10. So I remember coming to the U.S. as an immigrant and have that sort of, you know, that insider-outsider feeling um, that comes with not having been born in the country you've made your home. But I also didn't spend my childhood in Uruguay. Um, so uh, Part of what that creates is, so I was educated in English um, with some of the people in this room. <laughs> I went to high school with some of the people in this room, so they can attest that when I fell into novels, you know, and actually when I was 10, it was already happening, right? Falling into novels and, um, you know, writing high school papers and all of that happened in English. Um, was my first language Spanish? I, you know, people say, what's your mother tongue? I say, I have two moms, right? I have two mothers. I have two mother tongues. My mother spoke Spanish to me at home, and I was in England. So English was, was around in those first, you know, three years of my life as well. So just like my own children, I have two moms. And, um, so, and, and, and Spanish, is the, Spanish is the language of my bones. It's just deep down in there, and the depth of emotion that, um, that moves through me in Spanish is unparalleled in any other language I have spoken. And English is the language of my intellect in some ways. So my uh, some sort of capacity for syntactical and, and, and um, vocabulary you know, nuance is most, mostly been in English. It started to change because I became a literary translator and really fell in love with carrying work over from Spanish to English. And I've started to reverse direction. Um, it just in the last, you know, eight years. So that, that's been a very exciting development in my life. If you asked me 10 years ago, I would have said, no, no, I, I can't write in Spanish, I, or I don't write in Spanish. And now I'm in this moment where it's, it's shifting. My, my inhabiting of Spanish is, is shifting. Yeah, so that's, that's a bit of a long answer, but yes. I have translated um, a few of my poems that insisted on coming out in Spanish, I've translated into English. And I've, uh, have I translated my own work into Spanish? Um, very short pieces. 
very short pieces. It's interesting, translating yourself is a very interesting experience because part of the responsibility of the translator is to be true to the author's original intent. It's kind of amazing to be like, well, is the, would the author be okay with shifting this metaphor in order to be true to the underlying meaning? Let me see. Yeah, I'm cool with it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a strange experience. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that question. Yes, sir. And and then Natalie. Um, you had uh, mentioned that you had some of the main characters. Yes. Oh, that I got right. I like how you framed that as a positive. That's very nice. Um, yeah. So. Um, that's a really good question. So, you know, so these women um, in the book and, and in real life, these women came, so the way I first met these women is that um, I, I was a young woman in my mid-20s, and I was, as I mentioned, a queer immigrant person here in the country, and I was trying to, like, find my, my place. Um, I, was, I was also in the process of being disowned by my parents, right? So my parents, yeah. What, did you say super? You said super. Yeah, yeah, I totally get it. Super. I love that. I love that reaction. True story. I love that reaction. So, um, so, uh, so there I was. I was in my mid-20s, and one of the things that my parents said, which, and yes, sometimes this is a follow-up question, yes, the, 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 cutting, the cutting, the disownment is permanent, was permanent, continues to be permanent. Yes, the answer is yes. And um, so, and so this was a big moment, and I kind of intuited that this was, you know, this was, this was a, 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 a pretty, uh, a real crossroads, not like a blip in our relationship. Um, I was, I had met the love of my life. I was going to marry her in an illegal or civil disobedience ceremony because it wasn't legal anywhere in the country. And my parents said to me that I was no longer Uruguayan because I couldn't be both gay and Uruguayan. And, and what's that? And so, and so then I had material, I had burning questions to write novels from. <laughs> right, so that's like that's that's how that was such a and you know what's interesting about that actually, Shane, you're jumping in with that is is that um, is that so one of a novelist I really admire is Jeanette Winterson, she's British. You know, she's she's really blazed so much space for queer writers and queer women writers. And one of the things she has said, and she's really written about you know not being accepted by her parents in a, like familial homophobia in a very real and important way. And one of the things that she has said is, what story shows us is the nearness of the wound to the gift. And I think that's actually, there's a deep truth in that, right? So there's the wound, right? You can't be both. We're, 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 gonna, we're gonna say as, as the gatekeepers of, of our culture that you can't have the culture anymore. And then there's the gift, right? Me going, well, I'm gonna search, right? And so, um, so I find this woman, Gabi, I, I arrive in Uruguay uh, on this trip, and you know, I'm making 26,000 a year working at a rape crisis center. Like, I was wearing shoes until the hole, like, until the rain came in through the hole. It rains much more in Oakland than here. You know, that was a thing. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like I had a lot of cash, but I found a way to get to Uruguay, and I had the phone number of a, of a woman who my, who, who an acquaintance I had just met in California had said, oh, she's my aunt, and she's a lesbian. I'm like, a real, like, bona fide Uruguayan lesbian? She's like, yeah, she's a real lesbian. So I had this phone number. And so I call this woman, you know, who's like, you know, 15 years older than me, and I say, um, my hands are shaking, and I say, and I didn't say, I heard you're gay. You know, I didn't say, I'm gay. You know, I just said, um, I met your niece in California, and I'm in Montevideo. And she said, oh, it would be great to meet up, but you know, I'm heading up the coast. 
um, tomorrow. And I said, oh, too bad. I just feel it all kind of come crashing down. That's fine. It's okay. You know. It was too good to be true. And then she pauses and then she says, would you like to come? And I Looking back, I'm just gobsmacked by her generosity and just opening up like that, especially because she was going to go with her girlfriend and they don't come out to people they don't know. At the time, they were living really under the radar. So next night, I'm heading up the coast with them. And um, uh, so kind of, in, you know, back to your kind of the question about, about them. Um, this, is how, this is how it all began. Right, so there was a very personal urgency in it for me, um, and that was 18 years ago. In terms of um, the crew that I got to know better on the trip this this year after I had already this, I'll say one thing, which is we were sitting there drinking mate. Okay, so they bought this, so they bought this little ranchito, one-room hut. The five of them pooled money and bought this little hut in Colpolonio, and that happens in the book, and that happened in real life, and that's the hut where I stayed that first time in 2001, like the hut. It's this little hut, and you like shower under a bucket you know, and it's, and it's heaven. And, um, and, and, and former fisherman's shack. And so um, now they've pooled money to buy a little piece of land outside the city to retire on. And they're each building their little house, like Cobb houses. It's amazing. You know, it's women in their 60s, so they're just like re reinventing. And one thing that they do is they have mate, afternoon mate, yerba mate is like core to life. And so you have the yerba mate, which makes the rounds every, every afternoon at five. They get together for the mate. And every, you can do anything when you want on other days, but you go to each other's duende house for mate in the afternoon. So I went to the afternoon mate, and something I noticed was that they were all, like, they would just talk. So there would be, like, these waves of, like, they'd all talk at once, you know? And then, like, conflict would just spark between two women who are not a couple, but I found out later they were a couple, like, a decade ago, and they still fight a lot. They were a couple for 10 years. You know, yeah, you know, Claudia, and, you know, Claudia was also with this one, Gabi explains, and then she explains the whole story, but then Gabi, you know, then Claudia left her for la candombera, right, the candombe drum player, and then, you know, and I get the story, and then Gabi's like, well, I was with Claudia too, of course, but that was back in the day. So I get this sense that, like, actually, yes, this, like, richness um, that maybe I thought I was like bumping up was really uh, vibrant and present in like the long scope of their stories. I'll leave you with that. Thank you for that question. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that mm, much of that is not conscious for me. A great deal of that is not conscious. So I try to, um, I mean, say it's like these burning questions, but the burning questions feel like, if, if they're just a burning question for myself, you know, like, should I take X job or move to Chicago? Like, that question is not burning enough to carry me through a novel, right? It's too personal. Um, I mean, it can have a personal connection, but it has to feel like it matters beyond me and my own personal sphere, right? So um, for this, I really feel like the burning questions were more like, what does it mean to seek refuge, right? How do you create refuge when the world is like inherently not safe for people like you? Um, which is an urgent question for the characters in this world. It's also an urgent question today, right? There's a moment in this book where a character says to another one, there is no safe. Safe is what you make with your own hands. And the truth is I think about that a lot these days, right? I, um, with on so many different levels and with so much that we're going through um, as a society and in our political circumstances and you know 
with mass shootings, I mean, in El Paso and, you know, white supremacists um, targeting strangers in public with guns, right? It's just one of the things. Um, and I think about that a lot. You know, um, the, if you heard about the Gilroy shooting, that was, you know, that was just, that was, that was driving distance from my house. And this beautiful six-year-old boy was in a jumpy house and beautiful brown, like nuestro boy in a jumpy house. And, you know, my kids are brown too. And they love jumpy houses and they would have probably made friends with that boy. And uh, I'm not answering your question anymore. Um, but I th what I think I'm saying is that I continue to sit with these questions. Um, and so, yes, I'm putting things in that feel personally urgent to me. In terms of whether I put parts of myself into the characters, um, I've noticed that I continue to discover elements of that after the book is written. That I reread it, like I'll read it at a at a reading, like oh, <laughs> you know, um, like I, I I'm trying to oh I'm trying to serve the work and I'm trying to serve the characters, um, and I hope I still do serve the characters. But we even sometimes unconsciously might take from, and it might be something completely different, you know. It might be that you're taking grief about someone who passed away who you love and you put it to someone's grief for their father, and it, you know you you might put it into a different shape. Um, but it's, it's there. On the flip side, are there things that you learned about yourself in your writing uh -huh. that you discovered along the way? What a good question. Um, I mean, yes. I'm not sure that I could uh, easily catalog what they are, but I think um, those of us who feel really pulled to write um, write for so many reasons, and I think one of them is we write to discover. I mean, we write because the stories might be calling us deeply, right? The stories, for me, the stories move through, uh, through me. I see my job as um, striving to really listen for the book that wants to be written through me. I mean, we need so many books. You know, we were just talking about Jacqueline Woodson's going to come and read from Red at the Bone. Red at the Bone is a, Red at the Bone is a gorgeous novel. It, it was a novel that had to come through her could only come through her, right? Um, and so I do feel like on some level it's about making myself available for it to come through, um, whatever it needs to be. And then inevitably that's a process of personal discovery to show up for it and be present to it. Um, like, you know, these women go through experiences that, that challenge them to find their resilience in ways that are different from anything I've lived through. Um, I didn't come of age under a dictatorship. I was born in the era of a dictatorship in my parents' home country. And that has shaped me enough that I've spent 19 years obsessively researching it and writing about it. So it's, it's somewhere at, at the root of my experience. But I'm not one of the people who came of age under that. Um, and so I think, I think I learned deeply about the broad spectrum of the human condition um, as a writer, which I also do as a reader. I mean, books that I have not personally written, but have read, have given me so much uh, in that way. I mean, how many of you would say you're a passionate reader? Okay, yeah, majority. So, right, so I mean, and, and, and fundamentally, that's kind of what a writer is. I mean, we're all part of the same tribe. If you're, if you're a serious writer, you're, you started as a passionate reader. We all begin as passionate readers. And so, fundamentally, it's like one more 
uh, expression of that passionate reader tribe. And just like books have expanded me inside and, and really set me free. I mean, growing up in a household where my values were not going to be reflected and who I was was not going to be fully seen and I was going to have to break out of uh, the family I grew up in in order to become free. How could I, how did I, how, how was I able to do that? What gave me that? A lot of things, including books. Books set me free. I credit books with saving me. So, um, so yeah, as a writer and a reader too. Uh, yeah. Have you been waiting for a while? Parnas? Have you been waiting for a while? I'm going to do like in my classes, Brian and then Parnas and then Alicia. <laughs> I'm sorry? Oh, that's very kind. Yeah. Ooh, craft question. <laughs> in terms of revision, so... Um, so, you know, what's interesting is now I've written four novels. I've written, well, I've, I've had a manuscript of the fifth, but it's not published. So I've written four or five, depending on how you count. And, um, and something I've, I've, I've started to be able to do a little bit more is gauge in advance the structure that the book might need to have. Whereas, like with my second novel, I just had to take it apart and put it back together and take it apart and put it back together before I could find the structure. It was also a very watery book. Um, right? It was very literally. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so um, with this book, I had an idea for what I wanted the structure to be. And part of that is I wanted it to open in the like, bleak depths of the dictatorship when they first find each other. Um, and, then I, and then I wanted it to end in 2013, um, which is the year, I was living in Uruguay that year, and it is the year that gay marriage was legalized in Uruguay, by the way, before it happened here in the United States, right? Right, right? And so I, I, I wanted to kind of like trace that arc, which is sort of the equivalent of like pre-Stonewall arc of, of, of here to today, not temporally, but culturally. Um, I, I suppose that I, it surprised me that it, that, that held together. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then I, um, I, had to, I had to sift through the manuscript quite a bit in terms of balancing everybody's voices, um, because it's my first... Uh, it's not my first polyphonic book, polyphonic meaning many voices from multiple perspectives, but it was my first kind of um, simultaneously polyphonic book, so with a really fluid point of view. And I think that formal decisions, meaning decisions about the structure, style, point of view, um, undergirding a, a novel, formal decisions are at their most powerful when they mirror the content, when they underline the content in some way. And so even the fluidity within a scene um, of moving through different characters' minds um, was really important to me. And then I had to come, I had to come back through and kind of go, okay, you know, did this character get lost? Where's the balance? And do I need to rebalance? Um, and sometimes the balance, it was intentional, and it was okay if a character wasn't as present, and then sometimes I had to um, massage that. And then there was one character I had to work really hard to get to know. Um, so, um, so I just worked really hard on that. And then I had some of my early readers kind of tell me I still need to get to know her more. And so I was like, busted. <laughs> so in terms of revision, my revision was in some ways pretty focused on like particular strands and, and, um, and kind of how to balance those and lift them up within the greater fabric. Yeah. Thanks for the craft question. Yeah. I did. 
I am not frightened to write what I write. Um, and I think that just, you know, and I think that's because, it's not that I'm not frightened. I mean, I think we live, you know, we are living in very real dangerous times. Um, but I really just absolutely believe that classic Audre Lorde quote, that your silence will not protect you, right? And if I, if I, if I live in silence, um, I'm not going to feel safer. And I don't think any of us are going to feel safer. And I think in the environment that we're in right now, I mean, honestly, we are actually, we're living through times where there is a would-be authoritarian slash authoritarian, however you want to frame it, um, in power in this country, but he has not gone after the artists. Margaret Atwood called it early on in this administration. She said, you know, he's not going to do it because he doesn't see the strength and power of artists and writers, right? He does, it's like not even on his radar, right? He's like, Tony Moore, who, you know, right? He's never read a book, right? He's never read a book, so he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't perceive us as threats. Though I will say, you know, the, the anthology, Radical Hope, as you know, and you were so kind enough to contribute, um, what was something that I um, edited right after the election. It came out really quickly, just pulling together writers to respond to the changing political climate. And as the news started coming, like Bannon, when Bannon became part of the administration, that was the day I came home from teaching, and I said to Pam, I was like, we just need to know where our passports are. And Uruguay is the place, right? She's like, yes, Uruguay is the place. Like, where would we go? And do we know where the passports are? And are our kids' passports updated, like, in case we have to just, like, leave in the middle of the night? Like, what's the bag that you take? Um, I was definitely in that space at that time, which is not the same as saying I was afraid to write what I was writing. I was committed. I was fully committed um, anyway. And that's not what happened. She doesn't even know the book happened. You know what I mean? It's like it's a different it's a different reality. But um, I think that um, yeah, I, I feel like I draw so much courage from um, from writing and from sitting inside of truths. Um, I feel like silence can be so uh, can be well. There's different kinds of silence, but silence can be so toxic um, when we feel silenced when it's a silenced silence, if that makes sense. Um, so that's always felt like it's had a bigger cost to me, you know, but I'm the one who, I'm the one who came out. I'm the one who rocked the boat of my family. I was, you know, I, I've, I've never been able to um, be that person. It's like stay in your little box so that you can be safer and kind of, you know, walk the, walk the path that people have put out for you that's, you know, tidy and polite. I mean, I, I, I like to be polite to people. That's great. I'm into polite. I tell my children to be polite, you know, <laughs> but not in terms of um, squelching yourself. So, and I take so much courage from all of the brave writing that's getting published now. I want to say that too. We are living through a period of explosive literary creativity. I mean, brilliant, amazing shimmering novels and short stories and works of nonfiction and poetry are coming out that, um, that are so brave, you know? Um, so we're living through this incredible period in some ways. Were you waiting? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's complicated. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is really complicated, and I appreciate that question. It's complex. I mean, I do feel like this part of me that always wants to say, you know, in Uruguay we had gay marriage before in the U.S. because there is often this projection that Latin American countries, Latino communities, Latinx communities, right, that we're more backwards and we can't handle it, you know, when people come out, you know. So there's, um, so there, there's a part of me that always wants to lift up that, yes, we can, and we've always had, we've always had queer Latinidad, like, integrated into our cultures, right? Yeah, right, right, right. You know, yeah, you're not going to say that. So, so, there's, so there's that piece of me. Um, but yes, in terms of what I'm seeing in Uruguayan culture, um, even when gay marriage was passed, I mean, there, you know, even the women I'm talking about who were, in, you know, who, I'm, who are in, in, in points of inspiration for this book, like most of them didn't get married. Um, and, you know, had a lot of conversations about will we get married and what does this mean to us? But also, you know, a generation is shaped by certain things. I did attend a marriage of two men who had been together for 35 years, and it was so moving because, um, for a lot of reasons, they had been together during the dictatorship, and, you know, and they had, they, had they had slept in separate twin beds for so long in their one-room apartment that they, now they're like, we're still going to sleep in twin beds because, like, I don't know, I, I sleep well, you know, <laughs> they were, they, so you know what I mean, like they had, yeah, he's snoring, he kicks, you know, still, you know, they didn't want, they didn't want change, they had their thing going, but 35 years, and I walked in, and you know, Uruguay is just a country of three million people, it's a little country, and so I, there's one civil registry where people go to get married, so I walk in, and I go, this is the room in the black and white pictures of my parents' wedding. It was the same room. I was so blown away by that. Um, so I think things happen in a different order in Uruguay. Here, people came out. There was the gay rights movement in the 70s, and then into the 80s, people increased visibility. People started visibly having children together in same-sex couples, and gay marriage was kind of like a capstone to the movement. In Uruguay, gay marriage was like a, 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 a blasting open beginning to, in some ways, to the visibility of the movement. Um, people are still not, you know, like, I mean, people are raising kids together if they had kids in, in opposite sex couples before, but in terms of making children together, I know one woman who did that in the 80s, she's the most fascinating story. But other than that, um, it really, uh, you know, that, that the culture has not shifted in that way. We moved there for a year and a half, and we came out to like all these cab drivers and preschool teachers and, you know, and it went really well, actually, but we were everybody, we were so many people's first. We must have been like 500 people's first, you know, lesbian mom couple. And, um, and I did come out, and partly because I have the privilege of, you know, I can go back to the United States. I did grow up here too. I'm Uruguayan, but I'm also hella Californian, you know, because I'm like, yep, I'm gay. I'm taking up space. What? You know, I, I, I help myself to that space in a way that is not inherent in Uruguay. Um, and I think that, gen that generation, uh, that, that generation who's now in their 60s, they were shaped by the dictatorship. And I see it not just in the queer community. I see it all over the, the, the Uruguayans who lived through that as adults. They have a different kind of relationship to silence and shutting down and, you know, don't rock the boat. That is, that's very real. Now, queer people who are out under the age of 30 in Uruguay, it's a totally different culture. It's a totally different situation, different story, and um, and people are are, are taking up space um, and shaping culture in a way that I find really interesting and exciting. So, and I would like to learn more from them. I'm just beginning to to see it. Yeah. Yeah, we're good. 
Thank you all so much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.